Well, 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 and welcome to another episode of Med Chat with Michael Bennett. I am your host, the Michael Bennett. Uh, my guest today is Dana Jacoby. I am super excited about having Dana on the show. She's with Vector Medical Group. Dana is a recognized difference maker and trusted advisor to health system executives, medical practices, vendors, and other stakeholders in optimizing patient care while also elevating financial and operational performance. Let that sink in, folks. Okay, she is way above your pay grade for most of my listeners. Dana's passion for operational excellence has driven a distinguished record of achievement at the intersection of market data, measurement of analytics, strategy design and implementation, and technology innovation. She is a published author and engages audiences as a keynote speaker, educator, and subject matter expert at medical forums, summits, and conferences. Dana has played a pivotal role in leading transformation throughout the highly regulated and value-centric healthcare industry without further ado. Do, folks. Here is my de- uh, 30-minute conversation, which was definitely not enough with Dana Jacoby of Vector Medical Group. Enjoy. Well, welcome to another episode of Med Chat with Michael Bennett. I'm here with Dana Jacoby. We heard about her bio in the intro, but Dana, give us a little little 30 seconds on yourself uh, because I probably didn't do it justice. <laughs> no, it's great to be here, Michael. Thanks so much for doing this and for hosting this. So important right now with everything going on in healthcare. So I'm Dana Jacoby. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Vector Medical. And Vector was actually started, I had done medical market research all over the world, launched some of the brand names we know, Botox. I launched in China. I launched some Smith & Nephew products in Argentina. Anyway, came out of that stint and realized that there was a need for people to educate doctors at a broader level. I had the luxury of selling my medical market research firm to a private equity, and at that point got very motivated to educate doctors on their futures. And so now all Vector does is really architect the future alongside of our doctors, which we'll talk about has become a lot of transaction advisory only in the doctor's really are trying to figure out what they want to do right now with all the changes. Yeah. So let's dive into transaction advisory a little bit more for those that might not know exactly what you're talking about. Give us an example of what your core competency is and what you're doing kind of in that vein. Yeah. So we're a healthcare strategy firm. So our our normal client, Michael, even my day to day, I had one of the largest groups in the country call and say, hey, we don't really know what we want to do. We're not sure if we should bring in a private equity investor. We've got the hospital reaching out to us. We have some other institutional capital partners. Which direction should we go? And all these doctor groups and hospitals are just trying to figure out which way is up right now after COVID. And so we'll go in and help them really navigate the course of change, but also help them architect a strategy that they can adhere to moving forward. If they want to find a partner or a partner, you know, an investor group or somebody that they can help partner alongside of them with, we'll actually make some suggestions either on bankers, PE. We'll make some suggestions on who might be a good cultural fit, not just a financial fit for their future. So is it safe to say you're kind of more of a fiduciary responsibility with not fiduciary in the technical sense, but uh, to physicians and hospital systems that hire you to kind of navigate the waters that they're facing, but also private equity. You're kind of the uh, antithesis of private equity, where the private equity are coming in trying to buy practices, you're actually advising the practices on who to go with or maybe to run a process for picking a a private equity to go with and and lining up all the checks or pros and cons of each one. You got it. Sometimes we're two or three, five years before they even think about a private equity coming in. Um, Or if they want to stay independent, we'll also, also help them navigate those waters as well. In other words, we're kind of the Switzerland in the deal. We're not trying to marry anybody off or keep them single. We're just trying to give them really good education toward that end. Okay. And then um, as far as physician 
groups are concerned. I know that's one part of your business. Do you work with hospital systems as well? We do. We don't do as much of the big hospital system chains as we used to, and I'll explain why, but we've just got a lot of doctor groups actually exiting out of hospitals right now. So some of what we're doing is actually helping doctors figure out if they want to stay in a hospital or not. We have really good relationships with different hospital systems, but I find some of the bigger consulting firms really have that space. And so our, our sweet spot is really physician groups or small hospital systems. And so what is kind of keeping you up at night right now or keeping you busy uh, as it uh, pertains to what's going on in the market or just specific deals, not necessarily specifics on specific deals. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what, what's, uh, what's going on right now on the market? So pre-COVID, Michael, 59% of doctors were employed by a hospital health system or private equity-backed venture. That number is now upwards of 76%. So just in three years. So you can imagine, one, the unrest that that has brought to the whole system. But two, now if a doctor goes to the water cooler at AOS or, you know, AAC, all of a sudden they're hearing about EBITDA and multiples. And a lot of doctors don't really understand those 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 processes or those systems or what those terms mean. Um, the other thing, like I said, during COVID, you know, our hospitals were running on negative 2% margins. There, some of our specialists are trying to decide, do they stay in these hospitals? Do they leave? So we're navigating a lot of different changes. And then the third thing, we lost a fifth of healthcare workers during COVID. So nurse, you know, nurse degradation, nurse um, shortages, trying to figure out how to rebuild is really an interesting time. So, I mean, we were up at night over everything. <laughs> um, there's just so much change, I think, for our clients, the physicians and the CEOs. It's just really trying to stay ahead of the changes that are happening in healthcare. So a lot of, lot of differences going on that we haven't seen before. So you said you lost um, 25% of the workers during COVID. Is that burnout? People just exiting the the People business in the business, doctors burning out and retiring, nurses quitting. We had an unbelievable as travel nurses during COVID were up some crazy amount because hospitals couldn't keep nurses on the floors. Um, a lot of people reevaluated was healthcare the field they wanted to be in because, you know, you and I might have had the luxury of staying home and doing Zoom call. Not all of our doctor groups had that luxury. They were masking up in N95 masks, seeing patients eight hours a day. It's There's a lot of fatigue attached to that. Um, the average doctor in the United States is over the age of 55. So you can imagine if you had a 10 year run, it may have become a two year run, <laughs> right? Because of all the changes. So there were a lot, there's no one smoking gun of why the changes happened, but it was dramatic. So it's interesting you bring up kind of burnout and, you know, do you even want to be in the business, um, as it pertained to nurses, as we were talking about, but I, I've had physicians on the podcast before, they're talking about that themselves. Like, is this really what I want to be doing? Because I'm trying to answer phones. I'm trying to train people to do the coding. I'm screwing up on the coding. I'm not getting my reimbursement rate. I'm not getting any more reimbursement rate, even though my costs have skyrocketed. Like, is this really a business that I want to be in? Um, and I think it was one of my first podcasts, uh, a hand surgeon was saying that he thinks that 50% of his income moving forward at some point in the future is going to be from non healthcare related activities. So investments or real estate or, you know, an invention that he comes up with or something along those lines. You know, I, I try and talk about reimbursement rates and how that affects not only hospital systems, but physician groups on, on every podcast, because it seems to be one of the biggest issues, one of the most complicated issues, but it's something we got to figure out because if we are losing healthcare workers to burnout and, the fact that they just can't make the economics work and that if you're a 
new physician coming out of school, you can't make the numbers work either. Then, you know, where are we going to be? Right. No, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, Michael. I, it's, it's hard because every year the fee schedule comes out and it's down 5% again. And if you're a you know, hand surgeon, to use your analogy, if you saw 35 patients a day last year, you can't go see 38. <laughs> so now do you get physician extenders, PAs and PEs? Um, a lot of my clients are trying to put together direct to employer models. So they're going to the largest employer groups in their geography and circumventing the payers altogether or circumventing CMS altogether. Um, but it's a real problem. I mean, it, I think the thing we're hearing at the top echelons of healthcare is that they're trying to get every provider to practice at the height of their licensure. So if you're a doctor practicing at the height of your licensure, clinically, financially, operationally, if you're a nurse, same thing. Um, but it's it's definitely, if you're a doctor, I have a young doctor right now, he's got $350,000 in med school debt and a house and a wife that works. She's a doctor. I mean, now they're asking him, do you want to buy into the practice? And he's like, no, <laughs> why would I do that? But you can see it's a very different world than my grandfather being a doctor where I joke my grandmother's number one job was to take care of my grandfather. And it's just a very different world than it used to be two generations ago. Well, I don't want to deep go too deep into reimbursements because that's that's not my expertise nor yours. But um, I would like to kind of get into some case studies about what you're working on to the extent that you can talk about it at a high level, just to give the listener some insight as to kind of what you're hearing from clients and what problems you're trying to solve for them. Yeah, well, so interestingly enough, you know, you mentioned reimbursement, but that's a huge part of what we're being addressed, you know, what we're being asked to do. But the biggest thing I'm hearing from most of my clients is they're looking at building infrastructure for the future. Most of the groups and hospital systems have had to get bigger in order to survive, right? So they're they're trying to figure out number of payer lives covered. But now things are coming up like they need to build an ASC, an ambulatory surgery center, or two or three, because we know things are shifting into outpatient. So who's going to pay for that? You know, if you go to Dr. A, Dr. B, Dr. C, and Dr. D, Michael's going to pay for it. Exactly. But it's it's a real problem. We're in some of the biggest groups in the country. And doctor groups especially cash themselves out every single year on their K-1s. So they don't leave any income or EBITDA in the business. Well, now you go to purchase an ASC. And are you going to personally guarantee it? Are you going to get a private equity partner? Are you going to partner with the MedCraft if they even know how to do that? And so, you know, we're being asked a lot of, how sustainable is our model if we're not partnered with an equity partner? Not to mention when you go from 59% of doctors to 76 being employed, now your competition is Amazon, Optum, Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, private equity, you know, family offices, the hospital systems. If you're a mid-tier hospital or doctor group, what is, what is your livelihood look like if you don't figure out that strategic alliance? And so, um, some of the top brass practices and hospitals in the country, you'd be shocked when you go into their partner meetings like we do and we're being asked, can you help us architect our future? And we really don't know how we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, and it's just harder to practice than it was, like I said, a generation or two generations ago. And the younger doctors, not all of them want to be in partner meetings till 1030 at night. And I don't have a dog in the fight of whether that's good or bad, but it's different. You know, so how do you create the sustainability if you don't want to personal to personally guarantee things and you don't want to be in practice till 1030 at night? Somebody's got to keep the lights on. It's interesting you say, well, do they want to do private equity? Do they want to partner with a group like Medcraft that can provide all the equity for the AAC? Or do they not even know who to call? Totally. It seems obvious to me that 
um, a physician group or a hospital system that wants to get an AC, ASC built could do it very quickly. But it's interesting that you say maybe they don't even know who to call or where to start. And so that's where your firm comes in and really helps them uh, navigate those waters. That's exactly, that's 90% of the calls we get, Michael, or I, it literally is, I'm nervous. I'm not sure who to call. You always seem to know who to call. Can we just ask you who to call. And so we'll go in and educate them about this is a private equity deal. This is what Medcroft, I mean, they may not even have partnered or know Medcroft yet. It's like, well, this is why you might want to bring in a Medcroft. There are a lot of solutions out there for physicians and CEOs. It's just your ecosystem is this, right? And you went to med school and that was most of your contacts are from med school or your residency or fellowship. Now you've got to go get a loan or figure out an equity partner. What, who is it? You know, who's a good one? Um, and we, we get a lot of phone calls where somebody has gotten a letter of intent from someone and all of a sudden they're not sure, is that even a good, you know, prenup? And so we help them undo the prenup, hopefully before it's been signed and then really navigate who a good partner might be. So as far as, um, as far as private equity is concerned, I know you're on the other side, certainly a lot of talk about private equity coming in and buying practices, doing roll-ups. What are the kind of, what's the ugly truth uh, behind private equity deals that maybe doctors and, and uh, physician groups maybe don't, don't understand right off the top? Yeah, I think it's the biggest thing is finding the right private equity partner. So just to give you some real color, Michael, pre-COVID, you know, one private equity in orthopedics, for example, one in, one in MSK, nothing in 2018, nothing in 2019. Between 2020 and 2023, there's 22 different private equities in, in musculoskeletal. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of transactions. Some are good. Some are not so good. Some are well capitalized. Some aren't, haven't been around that long. So I think for, for the physician practices, one um, they're scared about losing control, which they should be, but most private equities aren't coming in to manage their clinical side of their business, but it's really about navigating and finding the right partner. Uh, and that, that to me, I didn't realize how important that was, not just the number, the financial number you get, but also the culture, the leadership. Do you have a seat on the board? Do you have a seat at the table? Um, some of the physicians don't understand that a letter of intent is a prenup. Some of them get locked up for months on the heels of that and don't understand the process. So um, I think the other piece right now we're seeing with the market conditions changing slightly is just debt recapitalization and what it looks like. We're going to see some mergers of private equity platforms where the consolidators are going to get married. And I don't know that the physicians were really prepared for that. Um, we've had the luxury of living in a very strong market and everybody seemed to have cash and now cash is more expensive. And so I think for doctors really being able to ask the questions two and three layers deep, if they're talking to a private equity partner is critical. Do you have any specific deals that you could walk through and, and maybe just grab some examples from them that might uh, benefit the listeners just to give them some things to think about? Sure. To the good or to the bad? <laughs> uh, let's do one of each. Yeah. So to the good, I mean, I have, you know, I, I always sit on the doctor side, so I get to watch the private equity firms present to us. To the good, I've seen some doctor groups that really did not have the luxury of building an ASC or figuring out infrastructure, Michael, and they are killing it now. Um, a lot of the private equities that they have partnered with had a thesis that was solid. They had infrastructure channels that they could build. They had a board of directors that was the who's who of healthcare. I mean, truly the who's who of healthcare, you know, former people from Optum or former people from HCA or former people from Intermountain, um, and not to mention the capital behind them. 
so to the good, it's made some of these doctor groups really perform at a level I don't know that they even knew they could perform at. The other thing that I didn't anticipate is some of the nurses or office managers, if they had the skill set where they could step up, they become a shareholder and a, a deal much bigger than themselves. So instead of being a single stock, they're now a mutual fund of really creating supply chain and they they get shares. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Right? You're a, you're a CEO or a, a nurse navigator and all of a sudden you're a shareholder in a multi-conglomerate company. To the bad, um, I've seen some bad actors that have overbid deals where the doctor's group isn't worth what they say it's worth or they or they retrade. What that means for, for the non-financial listeners is they'll throw out a number and then they'll literally bring that number down in diligence. I had one of my more dramatic ones literally retraded for almost $80 million last year. $80 million from the, the purchase price to the actual price or the letter of intent price, I should say. I mean... And the doctors were just disenchanted, you know, and so I think when you're not able to sniff out again, that cultural aspect, um, it just can turn into a really bad deal. Uh, the last but not least kind of worse one, some of my doctor groups that didn't have control over, they didn't hire good advisors. They didn't talk to a Medcraft. They get into a scenario of a PE situation and they didn't really weigh all of their options before saying Yes. And I think there's a lot of other things they should consider before saying yes. And I think that's where talking to Medcraft or getting a good advisory team together pre-deal can be so critical. Um, so some of my worst ones are more they wish they had asked more questions before they got married. What do you think uh, is on the horizon for 2024 from uh, deal velocity or uh, just in general with the, the market and, and kind of the industry? Yeah. So 2023, you know, has been wild. Uh, we have been slammed, but we live in the middle market. So some of the bigger deals slowed down a little bit in 23. Um, people are getting the wind beneath their sails again, which is cool. Um, I've never seen anything like orthopedics, the number of transactions, cardiovascular, um, amazing amount of transactions and platforms coming into the space. Um, anything surgical related, Michael, so bariatrics, neurosurgery, a lot of those groups that you wouldn't have thought would ever leave a hospital or actually leaving or partnering with a health system. That's a, another huge theme to form ASCs. So you might have like an Intermountain meets a doctor group meets a private equity or an Ascension meets a doctor group meets a private equity. Um, I don't think any of the headwinds that led us to this much volume in M&A and mergers and acquisitions in healthcare are going to change, but people are getting choosier about their assets. And why is it that, I guess, is Ascension okay doing that or Intermountain okay doing that where they're partnering with a physician group that has a for-profit interest in an ASC? There's a, maybe there's a ASC operator, well, there certainly would be an ISC operator that owns part of it too, or private equity that owns part of it. Is it just for retention of those doctors so they don't run away because they're, they're using it for income repair because, you know, they're not making as much or, you know, they're entrepreneurial or, or all the above. Uh, yeah. All the above. So one is, one is if we're going to lose them anyway, why don't we partner on the way out? Right. Rather than them competing with us being backed by private equity. The other is when you get some of these hospital CEOs off the record behind the scenes, specialists are expensive. They're difficult to work with sometimes, not all, but some. And so for the hospitals, they're looking at their balance sheet. They're running on 2%, negative 2%, depending on the hospital margins. The doctor salaries are some of their biggest spend. Why wouldn't you offload that, partner with somebody and build toward the future without losing your specialists altogether? You know, I always joke heads, hearts, babies, and knees pay a hospital bottom line. If you look at the salaries on the P and on the profit and loss statement, it's very expensive. So 
if you're going to lose them anyway, or there's a chance you can offload them and partner with somebody that has a ton of capital, great. What that means for the second or third transaction, I think, is a TBD. We haven't seen a whole lot of those yet. So, you know, sounds really good in theory for these joint ventures and partnerships, but there's the devils in the details. Is there any um, conflict that could arise from that? Like, I I don't know if Stark would be an issue there, but um, anything, anything that, uh, that is uh, worthwhile discussing? You know, I think that's over my pay grade, but I know a lot of states are looking at that as is Washington right now of what, you know, a lot of these private equity transactions happen so quickly, Michael, I think that everything is kind of on the table as far as what that looks like moving forward. I think each deal is being considered underneath that guys, but I just, again, that's, that's not, you know, I don't know is the short answer. Okay. I think longer answer is TBD. So I know that, um, I asked about the the sins of private equity, but I, I'll give them their fair fair shake and ask what the pros are for some of your clients and some of the good outcomes that have happened. I know that culture is a big thing, and you know, just self serving plug here for MedCraft. I mean, I think when we're competing with other buyers uh, for an asset, uh, medical office asset, we may not always be the top uh, price, but we tend to try and say, Hey, listen, I'm going to be your, my phone number is going to be in your cell phone. If you need something, you can call me. I'm a principal. Right. Um, you know, we have a different culture. We're not a giant, huge REIT that uh, you're never going to be able to, to talk to somebody other than an asset manager that's probably overworked and underpaid. Right. Um, and so uh, culture is very important to us. And, and you mentioned that with private equity, but what, what are some of the good outcomes that your clients have had? You know, I mean, being able to build an ambulance, you, well, I'll put it this way, Michael, my classic line to my doctors that are thinking about a private equity deal is if I gave you $200 million, what would you do with your practice? Every single doctor can answer that question with, I mean, unbelievable accuracy. And then when you ask them what the only thing holding them back is, the answer is capital. So for our doctors, when they think about it, I mean, they become shareholders in in something bigger than themselves. Again, I mentioned this, but they become a mutual fund, not a single stock. So if you cut payer rates in Colorado, I'll use since I'm sitting in Denver with you, you know, if you have an asset in Philadelphia or Minnesota or somewhere, you're not having to take the same, you know, cuts, Um, supply chain synergies direct to employer models, you know, payer strategies. I mean, there's a lot of good that has come out of these PE partnerships for our doctors. And some of these doctors that have gotten, you know, first, second, third bites or transactions, they're they're creating generational wealth. When you're a doctor and you retire and you haven't partnered with a MedCraft or a private equity, you're getting your accounts receivable. And that's it. After 30, 35 years of service, this is a way to really create economic wealth for doctors. And everybody thinks that doctors make so much money. Not exactly. And and honestly, their retirement plans just are almost non-existent. So it's a really good opportunity for physicians to partner with the right people, but to capitalize their future and equitize or monetize their value. Um. So if they had $200 million to use your example, would it be used for new equipment? Uh, would it be organic growth, recruiting doctors? Would it be buying smaller practices? I mean, let, let's just, that's interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, what do you think they would do with that? I just, uh, I'm just trying to get in the head of a, of a physician group. Yeah. So it depends on the specialty. I mean, if you're surgical, the ASC, the ambulatory surgery center play is a no brainer. I mean, that's just, that's the first, the first thing. 
if you're talking about specific specialties in orthopedics, for example, you can build urgent care ortho centers. So why are the patients going direct to, to the emergency room or direct to urgent care and then to the emergency room driving up healthcare costs? Why not capture them in your urgent care ortho facility and then manage that patient's care from there. So massive opportunity. We see urgent care kidney stone centers in urology. We see urgent care cardiovascular centers coming. Um, There's a lot in the urgent care space that you can take advantage of. So that's that theme. Um, Data analytics, IT, all things, quality care, you know, that is expensive. Uh, A lot of my groups that want to do value-based care models or direct-to-employer models, they can't afford five actuaries to run that. I mean, who has that kind of, they can't afford the data analytics. I was with one of the biggest groups in the migraine neurology space last week. And I said, he said, we have the best outcomes in the country. And I said, amazing. How do you track that? And he said, we just know. (laughs) And I said, well, that's cool. But moving forward, you're really going to need to have data behind your, your system here. And truly they are one of the preeminent groups, Michael, they don't have the money. They don't have the money to build data analytics and actuarial care. So it's, it depends on the specialty. I mean, I could give you a litany of different things that are needed, Um, when you look at the groups that perform at the highest top tier level, they do have value-based care. They do have direct employer models. Even if they're not perfect, they're getting there. They do have urgent care facilities where they capture the patient. They have marketing, they have IT, they have cybersecurity. Who would have thought that's a thing in healthcare? Huge. So it's, it's hard to put one thing, but if you ask a doctor what they would do with $200 million, they can spend it immediately. Um, just on all the things that they're they're deficit on because they have to go partner A, partner B, partner C, partner D and ask them for capital. Personally guaranteed, by the way. Ooh, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about data. I don't know if you have any clarity on AI or, or opinion on AI and what's happening. Um, I know there's some some startups out there that are working with physician groups on billing and coding and that sort of thing and, and taking um, automating some of that stuff. But have you seen anything that's interesting that? Uh... So it's hit or miss. It's not something our firm does a ton in. Um, depends on the specialty, depends on the space. The billing and coding sector is probably one of our biggest opportunities in healthcare, just because you, you hate to see this many heads in billing that you could solve for excellence in billing if you just had AI and you fed in what the right codes should be. So that's an easy, low-hanging fruit. In certain specialties like radiology, we're seeing a tremendous use of AI. I mean, the number of patents in radiology, if you Google patents in radiology for AI, it's its eight times any other specialty. The reading of. The reading of. So things like that, I think you're going to see a huge uptake in benefit. We keep hearing a ton about AI. I've tried to implement technology solutions with doctors for 20 years. <laughs> Not as bullish as most people are on how quickly it's going to be adopted. The opportunity for application is huge. It's just a question of how quickly we can get there. So the low-hanging fruit is radiology reads, billing and coding, things like that. The higher you know, acuity pieces are the things I think are going to be harder to fix. Yeah, and we've we've kind of shied away from some of the lower acuity stuff as tenants in our buildings because of just technology, even though it moves slowly within healthcare, um, you know, radiology group. Okay. Well, they might be out of business. Um, exactly. and, uh, it's interesting, um, that that's a big opportunity. What is the, uh, what is the role in real estate in private equity kind of pre valuation or maybe post valuation? I know for the most part, 
There are some exceptions. Uh, private equity doesn't really want to have anything to do with real estate. But is it a bottleneck of the deal? Is it not really even thought of? Uh, how do doctors, how should doctors think about real estate when they're looking at private equity? Do you think they should hold on to it? Should they do a sell lease back? Is it a mechanism for income repair? Like, what are you telling doctors about real estate that they own after they do it or when they're considering private equity? Yes, I'll give you the it depends lawyer answer, right? <laughs> depends, Michael. Um, I think real estate should be part of the conversation long before a private equity transaction is even talked about. So the the reality is exactly what you said, Michael. Most private equities, because of their whole time, because of what they're investing in, infrastructure-wise, et cetera, they, they don't really have the desire to hold or be, be even evaluating the real estate holdings. So a lot of times the real estate holdings don't come into the EBITDA equation much at all. I mean, it's just not talked about. So, you know, if it were me and I owned a practice, I would absolutely get a Medcraft involved earlier versus later, just because I should be evaluating everything I own infrastructure wise. Sometimes there's an opportunity to sell the buildings before, you know, before you even get into a transaction. So you can monetize that and equitize that as a part of the deal. Sometimes post deal, if you decide not to sell your real estate, some of your younger junior partners have a younger partner right now who is literally about to join a practice in a year. They're in the process of selling the practice to private equity. He's negotiating his contract for what it looks like when he comes on. He's scared spitless that he's going to miss the equity, that he's not sure what the equity moving forward is going to be. It would be amazing to make him a partner in the real estate or an ASC and give him something to look forward to in addition to the equity he might get from the PE when he becomes an employed or a partner physician. So, um, also, if some of the senior doctors hold on to their real estate, they could lease it back to the private equity. Now you've got a tenant that you're never going to have to worry about the capital. You're never going to have to worry about the, the personal guarantees. I mean, what a great idea. So I, I could see the real estate being a part of the equation from start to finish. But I think the biggest thing is a Medcraft or somebody like a Medcraft should be on speed dial for every doctor as they're evaluating their futures. So your lips to God's ears. <laughs> well, it's it's true. I mean, I, it's not even a it's not even a sell to me. It's more truly a lot. You know, you go back again two generations. My do, my grandfather was a doctor, but it was the same model. You owned your own building. Your building was your retirement. You sold your practice for with goodwill, by the way, which doesn't exist anymore. To a younger doctor who wanted to hang their own shingle, none of that really is reality anymore. And so I think if you're not taking your real estate into consideration pre, during, post transaction, you're probably leaving a lot of pennies on the table or dollar bills or hundreds or whatever, but you're leaving a lot of money on the table that you otherwise could really be taken advantage of. Well, coming to a close here, I'd love to just get your kind of any parting thoughts that you'd want to get out there or anything that maybe I didn't cover or ask you about that you'd like to tell the audience. I think the biggest thing, Michael, is this is an ever evolving healthcare world. I mean, you know, I mentioned it, but Amazon, Optum, Walgreens, Walmart, CVS, I think conversations like this that are taking into consideration, not just transaction advisory or not just clinical care or not just operations are so critical to the future of healthcare right now. Um, I hear when I talk to my physicians, for anybody that's not a physician on, on this podcast, but our doctors are really scared about their futures. They're watching the world evolve underneath their feet. They really weren't clinically trained for this. The ones that are coming out of school are more adept at these conversations than the ones that are kind of more seasoned in practice. So 
I would just encourage everybody to tune in to podcasts like this because this is where the good stuff happens. And then reevaluate everything on their balance sheet at a minimum of once a year. Um, but things are going to continue to change. And I, I, you either embrace it or you run from it. But my classic line to a lot of my doctor's groups is even not making a decision is a decision right now because it's evolving so quickly. You kind of have to be at the table or, you know, you're on on the menu, right? It's the old adage. So I would encourage people to continue to tune in and also reach out if they have any questions to either one of us. Appreciate it. And I will put your contact information in the show notes and to all the brokers out there, do not call Dana. <laughs> uh, she is not going to give you any leads. They're all That's coming funny. to me. Um, well, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the insight. I think uh, this side of the coin is uh, not something we get to hear about uh, very often. And so for me, it was, um, it was amazing to hear about your, your interaction with the doctors and your advisory work and kind of all the things that are on their mind, which I just have kind of a anecdotal understanding of uh, that's out there, but you're, you're right in the trenches and fighting the good fight. So I appreciate your time. I know you're busy and uh, good luck with the rest of this year in 2024. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for the service you provide. Great working with you and talking to you. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.